hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that, none, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you guide us now as we study your word, as we hear it preached? Would you give us understanding and faith? Would you confront us where we need confronting? Would you strengthen us where we need strengthening? Your word is powerful. We give ourselves to you now. We ask that you would um, nourish us through your word. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I want to talk today about idolatry and specifically our susceptibility to idolatry, our very real weaknesses that the devil knows about full well and is ready to exploit in order to draw our hearts away from God. Maybe you're familiar with the story of the hobbit and the dragon Smaug, what an ugly name, Smaug, who guards this great hoard of treasure. And one of the things that makes Smaug so menacing is that he's totally covered, head to tail, in thick, impenetrable armor. Well, he's actually almost totally covered. Bilbo the Hobbit sneaks into his lair and upon closer inspection, sees that there is one spot near the heart of the dragon where the armor is missing. It's open flesh. It's vulnerable. If you are going to take the dragon down, that is where you're going to attack. Well, I want to suggest to you that this passage shows us our vulnerabilities, our very open places where we are most susceptible to be tempted into idolatry, into false worship. The devil places some very natural cravings that we all have in order to draw our worship away from God. He knows our soft spots, and he attacks us there. Well, how does he do that? He has three strategies for drawing us into idolatry, and this is how we'll move through the text today. Three strategies for drawing us into idolatry. First, he dazzles us with signs and wonders. Second, he threatens us with death. And third, he sanctions us with social and economic 
pressure. He dazzles us with signs and wonders. He says, I'll draw them away from God with impressive, flashy things that make God seem weak and irrelevant. And if that doesn't work, then he turns to a next strategy, to threaten us with death. He says, I'll scare them into abandoning God. And then third, if that doesn't do it, he sanctions us with social and economic pressure. He says, I'll isolate them from society. I will put them out of the camp economically and socially, and they can't handle that. And then they will worship anything but God. The end of our passage says, this calls for wisdom. In other words, you need to know that this is coming. You need to know what to watch out for so that you do not fall prey to these schemes. So let's look at this first strategy of the evil one. He dazzles us into idolatry. He exploits our susceptibility to be impressed and won over by signs and wonders. Now, when I say he there, I'm referring to Satan, but Satan often acts through agents. And here in our text, that agent is the land beast. And you're probably wondering who or what is the land beast. Well, let's try and clear that up. Essentially, we're talking about a beast that's third in command on the org chart, so to speak. Okay, so at the top is Satan, the serpent that we read about in chapter 12. Next is the sea beast, whom Satan sends to do his bidding. That's the beast we learned about last week, and it represents Rome specifically and pagan empires generally. And then third in the chain is our beast here, the land beast. And this is some entity in the first century that worked in service to the empire and in opposition to God. He's assistant regional beast, you might say. Okay, now I want to hit pause on identifying who historically the land beast may be and instead focus on what he does, which is really the main concern for us. What does the beast do? Look at verse 12. It says, It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and here's the key, makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. His job is to draw worship away from God and toward the empire. Now, how does he do this? Well, here we get to the meat of this first point. One of his strategies is to dazzle people with signs and wonders so as to deceive them. And you know, on the face of it, you might think, is it, is it wrong to be dazzled by signs and wonders for those to get our attention? Didn't Moses and Elijah and Jesus all perform signs and wonders? And to that, I say, you are on to something. If you've seen the movie, The Usual Suspects, you might recognize this line where uh, Kaiser Sose says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Well, the devil has another trick that might be just as effective, and that is convincing the world that false prophets and false messiahs are the real deal. What's in view here in this section is exactly what Jesus predicts in Matthew 24 when he says, False messiahs and false prophets will arise and will show you great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And the imagery in this part of the passage confirms this. Look at verse 11. 
and how it describes this beast. It says he has two horns like a lamb. Well, earlier, Revelation describes Jesus as a lamb, but with seven horns and seven eyes. This lamb in this chapter is a knockoff lamb. He has the appearance of a lamb, but the voice of a dragon. He's really working for Satan. He's a false messiah. The beast is also a false prophet. Look at verse 13. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. Well, the two great prophets of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, who appeared with Jesus at his transfiguration, they did exactly this. They performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven in front of the people. When Moses was leading the people out of Israel, God sent a pillar of fire to guide them. When Elijah was battling the prophets of Baal, he called down fire from heaven to consume them. Whatever or whoever the beast is, it does Moses-like and Elijah-like things to persuade the people that it's from God. But then with that voice like a dragon, it draws worship away from God. It is deceptive. So who is the land beast? Well, between the allusions to Moses and Elijah and the fact that this beast arises from the land, I agree with Nate and many other commentators that it's one or several unbelieving Jewish entities or authorities that had some sort of prophetic ministry or some, and some level of political leverage as well. They had something to gain by being in service to the empire, namely the suppression of this new heresy called Christianity. These are Jewish authorities with some degree of political power that are working for the empire. And for our purposes, I don't know that we need to go beyond that in identifying specifically who it may be in order to respond to John's call for wisdom. The first century Christians faced a threat. Impressive false messiahs and false prophets who had the appearance of being from God, but in fact were working for the empire. People rising up and saying, look what I can do. Now follow me and bow your knee to Caesar. We may not have the exact same dynamics in our day, but there are many flashy and impressive things that get our attention. And when a sign or a wonder gets our attention, which they're meant to do, we need to learn to look past appearances and ask, what does this person or thing or message want from me? Everything will tell you it will save you. But what is it asking of you? What does it want of your heart? Where is it leading you? Whether it's political marketing or religious marketing or commercial mar marketing, there is so much in the world that wants your worship, your allegiance, your money, your life. We need to learn to be discerning because all manner of things are trying to lead our attention away from God and get our worship but our worship belongs to God and God alone. And so the first strategy of the evil one is to send false prophets and false messiahs to try and dazzle us into false worship. That's the first. And if that doesn't work, 
the land beast moves on to a second strategy, and that is to threaten us with death. Threaten us into idolatry with death. Look at verse 15. And it, the land beast, was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, which is the sea beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So there is coercion into idol worship through the threat of death. If you've read the book of Daniel, your mind may have made a connection just now to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's an amazing story. Toward the end of the Old Testament, God's people are exiled in Babylon, and they are placed under the rule of this wicked king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And this king made a great, tall metal image, probably of himself, and he unrolled this big campaign all across the land that whenever the sound of music was heard, everyone was to fall down and worship this image. And whoever wouldn't would be thrown into a fiery furnace. The threat of death coercing people into false worship. But there were three for whom the threat did not work. When the music played, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down and worship the very first time, right away, their minds were made up, this I will not do. And so they're dragged in before Nebuchadnezzar and told to explain themselves. And I love how they respond. Think about this. They're talking to the most powerful person alive. He's got the fire all cooked up and they've just disobeyed him. And this is what they said. They answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, Even if our God does not deliver us, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods. That is the backbone we need. That is the courage and holy defiance we need to worship no one but God, even before the threat of death. We will not serve your gods. The world has seen and is seeing today many Christians who do not compromise, who go to the gallows if they have to. One story of um, early Christian martyrs that has always stuck with me is the story of two young women in the second century, Perpetua and Felicity. One, a noble woman, the other, her slave, both mothers of infants who are still nursing, both imprisoned for converting to Christianity. Perpetua's pagan father was pleading with her, renounce your faith, just do it. You have a baby to care for. You're of noble birth. This is not your path. She said to him, do you see this vessel 
this water pot or whatever it may be, can it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he said. She replied, so also I cannot call myself by any other name than what I am, a Christian. And shortly after that, she and Felicity and several others were taken into arena, an arena, and they were tacked by leopards and a heifer, and then their throats were slit. We will not serve your gods. They were those for whom the threat of death did not work. And may it be so for us if the time ever should come. So the beast has his strategies dazzle us into idolatry, threaten us into idolatry. And there is a third, which I think may be the most effective for those living in an affluent society such as ours, where the threat of death is not so alive, and that is to be sanctioned economically and socially. And so we turn to our third point. He sanctions us into idolatry. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. That is, it makes no distinction to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. And that number, we see at the end of verse 18, is 666. Now, the history of biblical interpretation is full of fun ideas about who this number can refer to. There is this line of reasoning that uh, Greek or Hebrew words uh, have a numerical value, based on the numerical value of each letter in the word. And so that if you add up the letters of certain names, you get 666. So names that have been put forward are Nero, uh, Domitian. There's uh, even Hitler, if you wanted to, you could make his name be 666. Someone told me the other day that you could work out Ronald Reagan to be 666, which indicates that this line of reasoning is really not helpful. You can make so many different names be 666. Okay, so what is a better way to take it? Well, here's one that I think makes much more sense contextually uh, from Peter Lightheart. He notes that 666, that number only appears one other place in the whole Bible, and it's the number of talents of gold that Solomon imported every year from the Queen of Sheba. Okay, so God's kings in Deuteronomy were commanded, were basically given three commands. Not to multiply gold or silver, not to multiply chariots or horses, and not to take many wives for themselves. Or as Lightheart clever, cleverly puts it, no, multi, no multiplying of bombs, baubles, or babes. <laughs> there you go. Well, Solomon's friendly trading with the queen of Sheba was the beginning of the end for him in this regard. From this act of importing and, and some kind of doing some deals with the queen of Sheba, he tumbled exactly into what God forbid. He started trading with all the pagan nations, multiplying his wealth, multiplying his chariots and his horses, his weapons. And with that, all that intermingling with the foreign nations, intermarrying 
with foreign women, doing exactly what God had called him not to do. And so Lightheart aptly sums up the significance of the number 666 when he says this, it is the number of Solomonic wealth and implicitly of power-mongering, lust, and idolatry, which together turn the wise king from his wisdom. You will remember what our passage calls us for, too. This calls for wisdom. To be marked by the name of the beast or its number is a, figure, is a figurative way of saying to sell out, to do what you need to do to get in on the social and economic capital of the world, and specifically for the people hearing this, to gain access to the courtyard of the temple. And if you weren't there, you weren't anywhere. To be marked by the name of the beast is to say, I'm with you all, the powers of the world. I'm numbered with you guys. As opposed to wearing God's law on your forehead, as, the old, as Israel was commanded in the Old Testament, as opposed to wearing God's own name on your forehead, as we see in the next verse, in chapter 14, verse 1, that the saints have the name of the Lamb and, their, and of the Father on their forehead. So we're talking here about a choice. Whose name, whose laws will you wear on your forehead? Will you wear God's name and God's laws or you wear the name of anything else so long as it's convenient for you socially and economically. Compromise. Our, our world today is full of opportunities for compromise, no? Depending on what part of the world you live in, compromise may look different. In my neighborhood and maybe yours, every third house has a pride flag out front. I could gain some serious social capital in my neighborhood if I put one out. In other parts of the county, it could be the name of a politician on a sign that gets you capital, even though he or she stands against so much of what you stand for as a Christian. And it's not just social issue, issues. Isn't excessive wealth so deeply praised in our society? Isn't self-promotion and self-idealization, believing the right things, laughing at the right kinds of jokes, whatever it is, staying silent when we really ought to speak out against something? We all know, because we swim in these waters, we know what it takes to gain social acceptance, and we know when it takes us away from God's Word. We know. Each of us knows exactly the particular places of compromise that we are faced with every day. And it may be different for each of us. Those are the places where we need to resolve not to take a beastly mark on our foreheads. Not to number ourselves with the world when it's convenient for us. Well, how do we resist these temptations? You know, these things are in our blood. We love signs and wonders. We want to live. We want acceptance and a place at the table. And you know, actually, none of those desires is bad. And Jesus offers them to us all. The way that we resist 
the schemes of the evil one is we recognize that we have the real deal in Jesus. Satan offers counterfeit, non-lasting, earthly versions of what Jesus offers us perfectly. You want signs and wonders? God created the world through the word of his power. Want to see a sign and wonder? Look at Mount Baker on your drive home today. Listen to the birds sing and think about how every species of, the bird makes a, uh, of birds makes a different sound. In the Gospels, you have the signs and wonders of our Lord stilling the seas, healing the sick, raising Lazarus from the dead, himself being raised up by the Spirit. Yeah, pagans offer signs and wonders, but gods are always better. You know, in Exodus, when, when Aaron throws his staff down before Pharaoh and his magicians, you know, it becomes a snake. And then Pharaoh's magicians, they throw their staffs down and they become snakes. You remember what happens next? Aaron's one snake devours all of the snakes. Aaron's, there is nothing uh, they, the magicians, are nothing compared to Aaron, and Aaron is nothing compared to Jesus. Friends, we have our signs and wonders. We have something spectacular in God. And they point us to Jesus whom we were made for. We don't need lesser signs and wonders than what we have. Do you want to live forever? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You don't have to fear death when you believe in Jesus. That's why two young mothers could go into the arena with boldness because death had been disarmed for them and they knew it. We've had a number of people in our Congregation lose loved ones these last few months. You know what their comfort is? That death is a doorway to life when you are in Jesus. Jesus makes the threat of death empty. But more than that, he makes death the way we get to glory. You don't fear death when death is how you come home. That is the gift of Christ for his people. You want a place in the social order of things? You want to be in the courtyard where all the people are? Here's something better. You are actually part of the temple. Jesus is the cornerstone, and he makes all who believe in him living stones who are part of his holy dwelling, his everlasting temple. And we all have a seat at his table forever, and the table is bountiful. You don't need a place in the marketplace when you have a place at Jesus' table. You don't want to be on earth with the mark of the beast on your forehead. You want to be in heaven with the mark of the true lamb on your forehead, numbered with the 144,000 in perpetual safety and abundance and joy. You have to put yourself, or you have to put your trust in the one person who ever faced the temptations of the evil one and passed them perfectly. Because you can't do it. You cannot withstand his lies. You need, I need the spirit of truth for strength. 
You need God's wisdom. Don't kid yourself. You are susceptible. I'm susceptible. Look around at your life and take notice of where the evil one is trying to lure you into false worship. You can trace your susceptibility ultimately to back to fear. All of us have this great fear of missing out on what we need. But if you believe that God gives you all you need, then you can say with the psalmist, what can man do to me? What can 666 do to me? He can do nothing. I'm kept by God. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. My friends, that is the call from today's passage. Do you believe that the Lord is on your side? Do you believe that it is better to be counted with him than with anyone else? Do you believe that to wear his mark on your forehead, though it costs you greatly in this life, is worth your life? Do not be deceived by the strategies of the evil one. They will lead you to destruction. God offers you life and life abundant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, you show us what we need to watch out for that we would not be deceived, that we would not hand over our worship to those who do not, who do not deserve it. You alone deserve all our worship and our allegiance. We ask that you would strengthen our hearts, strengthen our resolve to love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to worship you and you alone. Thank you that you have given us the spirit to aid us in these things. Pray these things in Christ's name, amen.